Well, we are shifting in our seasons of the year uh, out of um, summer vacations. Uh, obviously, it's fall break for no few, uh, even this weekend. So we are moving from sunshine at the beach to leaves falling and rakes in the backyard. So I figured it might be safe, given that uh, scenario, given the change of the seasons, it might be safe to now bring to your mind an annual extravaganza on television, Discovery Channel's annual uh, tradition, Shark Week. You don't have to think about going to the beach, most of us, right now, so we, we can talk about that uh, right now. Uh, so, some other networks you may know that time of year there in August, uh, because they don't have the license, of course, to do Shark Week, they'll then rebroadcast Jaws, you know, the 1975 classic thriller, uh, the story of this terrible beast uh, swimming out there on the, off the coast of a New England town. Uh, it was one of Steven Spielberg's first real blockbusters. In fact, if I remember correctly, that was what the, probably the film that an American uh, cinematic culture really was the, one of the first blockbusters uh, for the summer season. Um, you may not know uh, this, that mechanical, it was a mechanical shark that was used for all those shots uh, there in the film. Spielberg had originally intended to use that mechanical shark, they called it Bruce, uh, he had intended to use that mechanical shark a whole lot more than they actually ended up using it, but the problem was the thing kept breaking. And he wondered, oh my goodness, this, is this going to work? I mean, because I'm, I need to have the shark. It's a movie about a shark, so how do we not have the shark? But it actually really turned out much better. Um, he, he came to realize over the course of, even while they were filming it, this actually is going to work to our advantage, having this unseen danger. It's, it's better to have the crowds there at the beach on these sunshiny days enjoying the water and splashing about and laying about and just as a normal old day or an ordinary day while there is this predator swimming out there nearby unbeknownst to him. This is a quote from Spielberg himself. It's what we don't see which is truly frightening. Is It's what we don't See is what is truly frightening. Or if I can play with that just a minute. The, the, it's the blissful, tragic assumption that all is well. The blissful, tragic assumption that all is well. This morning is intended to be the first of a two-part Series, if you can call two parts a series, in the, the book of Joel. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd urge you to go ahead and start turning there now. That's in your, your Older Testament. Uh, it's what's re- he is, uh, Joel, the book of Joel is what is referred to as one of the minor prophets, not because he was short of stature, uh, but because it's short of length. Uh, it's unfortunate that these, some of these other prophets are referred to as minor, but understand that's in the sense of literature and length and such. But we're going to be looking at the book of, of Joel. Uh, there's a bit, we're, we'll frankly, just have to be honest, we don't know much about Joel, the man. Uh, we know what his father's name was. We know what his nationality was. Uh, really don't know for sure what time in Israel's history this was, for sure. Some pretty good guesses have, have been made through the years. 
Uh, so that means we don't know the exact context in which these events that he's describing here are taking place. Uh, we, we do know, we'll get into this as we move along, that the theme of the whole book is the day of the Lord, the sure coming of what the prophets, major and minor, refer to as the day of the Lord, a, a, a day of the Lord's coming, His asserting Himself, His entering into the ordinary flow of human history, a time of reclaiming, a time of resetting, a time of restoring, a time of trial, a time of suffering. He's going to be speaking here about a plague of locusts, the invasion of armies, a time of judgment, and at the same time, the promise of restoration for those who will respond in the right way. The day of the Lord. Now, we're going to be starting at the beginning. Pretty good place to start. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 17. It's not as long as that sounds. We're going to be honing in, actually, in on uh, verses chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. But to get a sense of the whole thing, for this morning, we're going to be reading basically the first half of Joel, and then the plan is uh, to move into the second half of the book of Joel next week, okay? So hang on. Settle in, get comfy. We're going to be reading Joel chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 17. Okay? Hear now the word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn its ministers of the Lord. Its fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. 
to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, and storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near." A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? 
we pray? Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your clear openness with your people for withholding not a thing that we need um, and including we know that is not withholding a thing we need to hear. And so this morning, uh, as was said earlier, you have brought us here for a reason. There is something from this passage that every single one of us needs that's clear, the fact that we're here in the room. You have intentionality for us, every single one of us. If we are breathing, you have purposes for us. We pray that you give us ears with which to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. The Old Sal is a whirlpool just off the coast of northeastern Maine. It is the second largest whirlpool in the Western Hemisphere. It is the second largest in the world. I'd never heard of this till just here in the last few days reading something about it. Uh, what causes it? Well, it's a confluence of things. Uh, tidal, uh, influ- tidal influence, as you could say, the high tide in this particular bay, uh, the river countercurrents mixing in with that. Uh, then you have a couple of deep tr- underground, uh, excuse me, underwater trenches and an undersea mountain, and all these things placed where they are, as they are, converge together to create an aquatic nightmare for the unawares. No few examples in, in history, at least in Amer- North American history, the United States history, that can be traced back in terms of disasters that have taken place in the lives of the, the unawares caught in the old sow. So here, let me give you two. 1835, two brothers go out just a little bit offshore in the schooner, and they are sucked into this whirlpool because they weren't aware of what was happening, and they're watched from the shore by their mother who sees their, their little boat sucked into this thing and these two men never to be seen again. Untold uh, number of cases even in the years since, but uh, moving from unpowered boats from 1835 to a 1940, a freighter, moving from a coastal town in Maine up into New Brunswick. I think it was carrying sardines, actually. Uh, the, uh, the captain steering his boat, just minding their own business, not paying attention to the charts, it would seem, because all of a sudden that thing opened up right beneath their bow. And it pitches forward and is beginning to, be, to slide down into the maw of this whirlpool. It's a rudder and the propeller in the back pop up out of the water so they can't steer. But as they're being sucked down, that propeller does end up being popped down into the water. The captain is able to get control back of the ship, steer out finally away from danger. That's as recent as 1940. You see, with the old sow, you've got to know how to steer clear. You've got to know how to get out, or put another way, you've got to know how to respond. You've got to know how to respond. That takes us back to Joel and the reality of the day of the Lord. Again, this is, uh, this is language, this is, ter- this is terminology that we see both 
Uh, in the minor prophets and the major prophets, Joel speaks of it five times in this short little book, three times, actually, in the text that we've just read here this, this morning. Again, this is speaking to, on the one hand, the climactic, ultimate, final day of the Lord, the last day in history, but also all the other lowercase d day of or days of the Lord leading up to that. Again, his intervening his entering into the flow of human history to judge sin, uh, to, again, as I said earlier, reset, recalibrate, renew, reclaim things amidst his people, among the nations as, as well. Uh, as I said earlier, we don't know exactly when this was written, likely after the exile, po quite possibly in that time frame, just given some clues in, in here uh, likely, you could say one day, climactic day of the Lord would have been that the prophets would have had in mind, would have been the Babylonian exile, a horrific time in Israel's history. Fast forwarding some century, 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, that certainly would have been yet another. But all the others, including this time, a plague of locusts, terrible, horrific desolation. You can hear it in the poetic imagery here. The destruction caused by these invading armies. And then all, can I even say a lowercase, lowercase d? Just the ordinary times of suffering and trial that God's people go through from time to time. Those two are days of the Lord. And the idea is, in every case, whatever case, lower, lower, or lower, or upper, they are meant to point us towards the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord. They are meant to serve as a warning, a wake-up call. We need to know how to respond rightly when such times come. And what the message of Joel is showing us certainly here is that the right response to such a warning is that of repentance. Turning from our sin and turning to the Lord. And that's the message, basically, of the first half of the book of Joel. The day of the Lord is near. We need to repent. The day of the Lord is near. We need to repent. Now, to get at that, we're going to unpack this just a little bit, breaking it down in, in three points. If you print out the outline, this is where we're going over the next few minutes. First, what would that mean? What are we talking about when we use the word repent? What does the Bible mean? More specifically, more importantly, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of this need to repent? The second point, stemming right from that, flowing right from that, is why is it needed? Why do such times come, and why do we need to respond in this way? That's the second thing. And then the third thing is, how is this even possible? How is it possible for people like you and I to repent? So, the what, the why, and the how. The what, the why, and the how. What does it mean? That's the first thing. What does this mean? As I said earlier, we're going to be drilling down into this little section here, uh, here about midway in chapter 2. So chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 are, are really quite helpful, very important for us to hear at this point as to what the Bible means when it's speaking of this idea of repentance. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Bible scholars oftentimes refer to, when there's, on the topic of repentance, there being two different types, two different types, a false kind and a true kind. The false kind was referred to in technical terms as attrition, that is to say a false repentance, a remorse that is driven in, that is rooted in a fear, a fear of consequences, a fear of, of getting caught. That is a false repentance. And the Lord is not interested in that in any way at all. That is the rending of garments and garments alone. It's just nothing but externals. You may know that in those times, it was, it was partly in certainly parts of the world still today. It is a custom. You know, that's meant to be an external sign of inward sorrow and grief. The rending, the tearing of the cloth of what you're, of what you're wearing. But the problem is, of course, that can be faked. That can be all for show. It can be all theatrics. And the Lord is not interested in our theatrics. He is, is, is not interested in a, a rending of the garments alone, but a rending of, as, as Joel says, a rending of the heart. Not false repentance, attrition, but true repentance, contrition. Not just a remorse because we're afraid of the consequences because we've gotten caught, but a remorse rooted down in sorrow for our sin. Grief because we have grieved the heart of our God. That kind of remorse that recognizes the reality of a relationship. We stand with him, and we have grieved him for what we have done. And in that sense, a, a, a turning, and not in part but the whole, the whole person, the whole life, um, a turning from that and to him, a turning from our, our self-determining, self-dependent, self-reliant, self-righteousness, turning from that, our default settings, to Him, to Him. And not just once for all, when we come into relation with the living God, but continually, daily, constantly, our whole lives are to be a lifestyle of, marked by an attitude, a heart of repentance. Some of you may know Martin Luther, the first of the 95 theses that he posted on the Wittenberg door, October 31st, 1517, read this way, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, whom, when he said, repent, will the whole life of believers should be repentance. It's not a one and done. It's 24-7. Our lives are to be marked by a turning from sin and a turning to our Lord. John Stott uh, speaks of this beautifully in an illustration that he gives in his wonderful little book, The, the Birds Are Teachers. He was a bird watcher, not just a Bible scholar. This is the tale he tells. Since 1954, I have had a cottage on the coast of Pembrokeshire in southwest Wales. Offshore are the islands of Scomer and Skokum, on which more than 200,000 pairs of Manx shearwaters, half the world's population, are believed to breed. Manx shearwaters are birds to the ocean, of the ocean, open ocean, which winter as far south as the coast of Argentina. They come to land only to breed. And they lay their single egg underground at the end of a rabbit burrow. 
1952, one was was taken from Skolcombe and released inland in Cambridge about 240 miles away. It was back in its burrow seven hours later. On another occasion, a Max Shearwater was flown 3,000 miles from Skolcombe across the Atlantic and released at Boston's Logan International Airport. Twelve and a half days later, it had returned to its burrow home, having traveled an average of 250 miles a day. And this is where Stott goes with this, the point. Would that we had as strong a homing instinct spiritually as these birds have physically. Would that that be true of you and I? Well, let's think about this just for a moment before we move on to the second point. How do you know? How do you know if you've repented? How do, how do you know if, you're, if you've not fallen prey to the, fo- the folly and the lie of false repentance, of attrition, and have not given your heart towards true repentance, contrition? Well, just ask you. Here's a diagnostic question to ask. What breaks your heart? In this, what causes your heart sorrow? Is it the fact that your hand got caught in the cookie jar? Is it... Is it the devastation to your crops, if I can put it that way, in the language of Joel? Is it that the locusts and the armies have come? Or is it that the heart of your God is grieved? And then going a little bit further, as another diagnostic question, have you moved beyond the feelings to the action? Have you begun to take the concrete practical steps that are necessary in the real turning from that sin to walking with your God and not playing games. Are you willing to go that far? If you are, then that's repentance. My friends, this is what we're seeing here. The day of the Lord is near. We need to turn We need to repent. That's what it means. That's what it means. I'm moving on to the second point. Why is this needed? Why do such times come? Why is such a response appropriate in such such times? Well, I'm going to speak of two reasons for this now at this point. One is a a, a scenario, a, a, a reason that's always present. It's always there in our lives. There's no exception for any of us at all. And, one, and the, other, the other needs to be clarified and to say, well, that could be. That could be, and we need to be honest and straightforward about that. So first, the, the first being the one that, that always is, is ever-present, that we all, all we need to be aware of. I'm going to speak of this in terms of our, it's for our development. Uh, there is an ongoing need, all of us, all the time. The reality is there are, there are times... There are times where the Lord simply needs to get our attention. We need spiritual. He wants to get our attention. He wants to um, recapture or capture our affection. And so these times then will come. He'll bring them into our lives. C.S. Lewis, in one of his classic works, The Problem of Pain, speaks to this very point. He writes, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. 
Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. And, man, and pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our own sins and in our stupidities, and anyone who has watched glutton shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore our pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That megaphone to stir and awaken is one of the reasons such days come. It's one of the reasons such days come. Now, that said, it's not the only one. I need to shift now from, for the sake of our development, our maturing, our stirring, that he would get our attention and all such things. Now, moving to this other one that's present in the book of Joel for our discipline. Our discipline. Now, this, please, please hear me. I can't tell you how many conversations I have had through the years on this score. Not... Every suffering, not every pain, not every heartache that you experience in your life has come into your life for the sake of the Lord's discipline upon you. It's simply not true. That's the foolishness and the lie of Job's friends and the Pharisees. That said, that element can be at times present in our lives. And for that reason, we have to ask the question. It's what we see here in the book of Joel. Sometimes it's there. Here, it's why the locusts came. It's why the armies invaded, pointing towards something the ultimate day of the Lord that would prove to be, will prove to be, far, far more cataclysmic, far worse. Meant as a warning, a, a severe mercy, if I can put it that way. A severe mercy. And, the, and God does send such times. Let me keep your thumb there in Joel. Let me turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This is actually quoted also in the book of Hebrews. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is why such seasons do come. At times, for the sake of our development, to get our attention, to reclaim our affections. That's true all the time all the time, all the time for all of us without exception. But at other times, other times because of our sin to discipline us, to discipline those he loves. Now, again, here's the question that needs to be asked at this point. How do you know? 
How do you know? How do you know why it's come? How do you know whether or not this, the, the, the point behind this, the, his intention behind this is for the sake of our development or for the sake of our discipline? How do you know? Well, first off, you can't. Just need to be honest about that. But if you want to pursue it a little bit, let me just say this. It can only come through much prayerful discernment in the context of community. And I mean, we have to say every one of those words in that sentence very strongly. Prayerful discernment in the context of community. You take any of those out, forget it. And here's what you can know. Whatever the answer does prove to be, God is good. He is sovereign over all things in our lives, whether it's for development or discipline. He is sovereign, and His sovereign purposes are always for our deepest eternal good. And we can know that. And we can see that here in the book of Joel as well. You can certainly see that here in the book of Joel as well. Again, my friends, the day of the Lord has come. We need to turn to him and repent. It takes us to the last point. How is this even possible? How is this even possible? What are the grounds? Do we see any grounds for this within the scriptures, in particular here in in the book of Joel? Absolutely. Again, verses 12 to 14. Let's read that again. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Oh, do you hear it? Do you hear it? One of the grounds, one of the reasons that we can turn to him is knowing who he is, the merciful ways of our God. Do you hear how he describes himself right here? Do you, do the assurance that we have of his character, of his ways with his people. He's, Joel, the language here is hearkening back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 34 and God's self-revelation, that grand moment in redemptive history where God reveals himself as in this, these very words. There to Moses at Mount Sinai. So we have the assurance as we, as we were come back to him. We know that we are not going to be met with a scowl, a pointing finger, but with an embrace and with a smile and a celebratory, I'm so glad you've come back. Welcome home, my child. Every time, every time, because he doesn't change. That's the first reason. That's the first grounds that we have. What? Wow, we could just stop there, but that's not all we have. This is the work of the triune God, the grounds for our repentance. So we have the merciful ways, we could say, of the Father. Then we have the finished work of his Son, the finished work of his son. The, the, I alluded to this already. The imagery of these plagues. The, 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 the locusts coming in and the utter devastation. Just horrific what would happen when these times would come. Still today, you read of 
locusts just coming in, especially in an agrarian culture, the utter devastation that can last for years and years and years because of this. Then, of course, the destruction brought by these invading armies and what that entailed and the horror that came with, with that. And all of that meant to point to that day of the Lord, meant to point to the final day of the Lord, the end of human history. Well, here's what we know. In the middle of that history, Jesus goes through the day of the Lord. Jesus goes through what was due upon you and I in the wrath of God poured out in full upon Him so that when that day comes, it will be for you and I not a day of destruction, but a day of deliverance. That's good news. That's really good news. And now here again, this is grounds. Grounds for why we can turn to Him and know really who it is that we are turning back to and who it is that we turn from. But there's one more. And then the book of Joel speaks to this as well. We're, Lord willing, we'll get into this next week, but I just want to touch on it right now. So we see the merciful ways of the Father, the finished work of the Son, and the ongoing work of the Spirit. We'll see this as we keep reading through the book of Joel. The Lord's promise to be with His people, to dwell with us. In fact, to indwell us. That's going to be some of the ramifications of that. And there's a, a twofold reality that comes out in this, especially in the context of when we're speaking of the call to repent. Think with me. The sin that makes repentance absolutely necessary, yours and mine, the sin that makes repentance absolutely necessary also makes it impossible. Right? That Savior, that same Savior we spoke of just a moment ago, who endured it all for you and for me, has sent His Spirit to free us even now from our sin and to come back to Him in repentance. This news could not be any better. We have the work of the triune God that we would be able to repent, that we would be able to turn away from our sin, our self-dependency, our self-determining, our self-righteousness, um, turn to Him. Questions to ask, perhaps at this point, would be just three quick ones. Do you know the heart of the Father towards you this morning? Do you know His heart of mercy to you right now? That's one of the grounds. Do you know it? Have you embraced the finished work of the Son for you? Have you embraced it? It's one of the grounds. Have you embraced it? Are you leaning into and living out of 
the work, the indwelling, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life every day through the day. It's one of the grounds. Are you? My friends, again, the day of the Lord is near. It is ours to turn and to repent. Let me end with this, a little show and tell. Well, I'm going to flip it. We've already done a whole lot of telling. Let me do a little showing. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic work from some centuries ago. One beautiful, beautiful scene. Christian and Hopeful are making their way down King's Highway to the Celestial City. And the, the path at this one point that has been, you know, for the most part, smooth and, and relatively easy, begins to turn somewhat rough and hard. And they come upon this place called Bypath Meadow. So they decide, oh, that sounds good. So we're going to hop the fence off of the King's Highway. We're going to hop the fence, and off they go. And th this path seems to be pretty easy. It's not so bad for a time. Then it becomes rocky and steep, and a storm breaks in upon them, terrifying them. Exhausted by the effort to keep going, they lay down and go to sleep in that, in that meadow only to be awakened by the owner of the meadow, giant despair, who lays hold of them both and takes them into Doubting Castle, where he beats them and starves them and berates them and tortures them and leaves them there. Christian and Hopeful begin to despair but finally they pray. At which point, Christian remembers he has in his pocket the key of promise. And he lays hold of that promise. And they are then enabled to leave that dungeon. And they're free. Can you relate to that story in any way? Do you feel, do you find yourself in that plot line in any way here this morning? Caught in doubt, afflicted by despair. My friend, you have but to lay hold of the promise and he will set you free. The news is that good. The call to repent for the day of the Lord is near is good news from our good God who loves us so. Let me pray. Lord, this is certainly not an easy message, but it is needed. We suffer on the topic of repentance from far too many caricatures and such foolishness, cartoon figures. But really the resistance is a whole lot deeper in our hearts. We resist even believing we have anything to repent of. So first we want to repent of that. We, we hesitate because surely we think, well, that's for other people. That's for them. 
And we have quite a list of what that looks like. You mean this to be for us. Would you give us the grace of repentance? Would you give us the humility to hear? Would you give us a willingness to examine our hearts? Would you give us an inclination to grieve? Would you give us the ability to change, the ability to turn, to turn from, to turn to? Thank you. Thank you for the warning and thank you for the invitation. Oh, would you help us to heed it now? Amen.